1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. But since we were torn away from you, Paul said, brothers, for a short time, and in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. We're going to spend our time tonight diving into the depth of things that are here. I think a lot of us have only probably read these verses. I don't know how many of us have actually taken the time to study them deeply. And that's what we're going to do in the time that we have tonight. As you hopefully remember, because of the persecution that he's talking to them about and the attacks by the Jews, Paul and his companions had to leave Thessalonica. That's why he says we were torn away from you for a short time, in person and not in heart. Go back with me to Acts 17, and let's just get a little refresher. We'll go to Acts 17, verses 1 through 15, and see what happened while they were there in Thessalonica and what Paul's talking about. And hopefully, you'll see something here that ties to what Paul says in these verses. In Acts 17, verses 1 through 15, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Luke's writing about all this. And where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. That's the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the, of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security, we'll come back to that later. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women and of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So this is how the church got started there in Thessalonica, and the Jews who were persecuting the church just like Paul used to, they showed up and just said, man, and they caused the, They grabbed some bad guys from the street, if you will, and they made a mob, and they went to beat them up and chase them out of town, but they couldn't find Paul and Silas and Timothy. But they knew that they were staying with this guy, Jason, and so they dragged them and some of the other Christians out of Jason's house, took them before the magistrates and said, hey, these guys are teaching everybody to say that Caesar's not king, which isn't what they were trying to do at all, but that's how they twisted it. And so then... They made Jason pay some money as security. We'll deal with that in a little bit. 
And then they sent Paul and Silas and Timothy on to Berea. But then as we just read, while they were in Berea, the Bereans were examining everything they said against the scriptures. And while they were there and people were coming to faith in Berea, some of the people from Thessalonica came to Berea and chased them out of there. So Paul says, go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, verse 17, Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted, we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. This we're going to deal with. How did Satan hinder Paul from coming to see them? Well, we're going to spend a little time doing a little deep dive in Scripture to look at how Satan works. It will help us a lot to know this. First off, Satan is always on the prowl looking to do damage, all right, and to slow the work of God. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verses 8 through 11. In 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So first off, we see Satan's always on the prowl, looking to slow the work of God. But now this also, you need to keep something else in mind. He's not free to do whatever he wants. The Bible's very, very clear about that. That God controls Satan and what he's allowed to do. We don't have time to walk you through that, but if you go back and look at the book of Job, and how the angels all appear before God, it sounds like they're checking in for, you know, to be, to be examined, if you will. And uh, inspection, if you will. And the Bible says, and Satan came with them. Why? Because he's an angel as well, a created being. And God says to Satan, what you been up to? Now, does God not know? Of course he does. But God's jerking his chain a little bit. Satan can't say none of your business to God. So he has to answer. And if you go back to the book of Job, you'll see what his answer is. I've been going to and fro throughout the earth. Well, what did 1 Peter 5 just tell us he's doing? Looking for someone to devour. So Satan says, you know what I've been up to. I've been going back and forth throughout the earth. And then God says, have you noticed Job? God's the one that points out Job. And what's, what's Satan's response? Yeah, I've seen him, but you won't let me touch him. The reason he responds the way he does, the reason he's as righteous as he appears, is because you've put this hedge of protection around him and you won't let me touch him. God then, as you know from the story, determines the parameters and what he's allowed to do. You can do anything you want. You can't touch him. Of course, he kills his family and so on, loses his possessions. But again, as it's chapter 2, when Satan appears again, God says, hey, hi, what you been up to, you know. And did you notice how Job did? Well, that's only because you wouldn't let me touch him. God then says, I'll tell you what, I'll let you touch him now, but you can't kill him. And of course, he gives them this health issue as well. So, folks, keep this in mind. Satan is always trying to hinder the work of God, but he's only allowed to do what God allows him to do. But when God allows him, God has a greater purpose in mind. You do hopefully understand that Satan won't ultimately win, right? 
Jesus in Matthew 16, 18 said this. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. It may look like he's winning, but he's not. I get tired of traveling around the country and hearing people say the church is sick. The church is dying. The church is weak. And I say, Jesus said he'll build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. What are you looking at? Now, a lot of our local congregations might not be so healthy. But let me tell you from a guy that travels around and gets to see God at work. Y'all have been able to see God at work around the world. The church is fine, folks. God's getting his stuff done. People are coming to know him. There are people, there, there's things happening all across the globe. Our local congregation sometimes gets so stuck hanging on to what was, we don't get to be a part of the things that he's doing because he's always saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. And we say, well, no, we're comfortable. We got a nice building here. But let me just tell you, he said he's going to build his church. Satan is not ultimately going to win, but he is always lurking and will even make an appearance among and through believers as well as unbelievers. Keep this in mind. God may even allow him to do some of his work through believers as well as unbelievers. We don't want to be one of those people that he uses, but sometimes God lets him. Go to Matthew 16. We had just quoted Matthew 16, verse 18. Where Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. But go to Matthew 16 and look at verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Was Satan trying to hinder Jesus from doing the plan of the Father in his life? Yes, without question. And he even used the believer. Peter had already been given his righteousness at this point. Flesh and blood had not opened his eyes, but the Father. And Jesus said, you're that new creation now. You're Peter. And after he had been declared the new creation, Satan still spoke through him. we got to be careful ourselves. Even as believers, sometimes Satan will want to use us to discourage or hinder the work of God. Don't be one of those people. Go to Acts chapter 5. Don't let him. Go to Acts chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 4. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God." Look at what Peter said. I believe the Bible kind of shows us that Ananias and Sapphira were believers. I believe they were believers because they were lying to the Holy Spirit that lived within them. But he said, why is Satan so worked in your heart in that way that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? Folks, Satan is always trying to hinder the work of God. He's only allowed to do what the Father allows him. And his purposes are to hinder or stop the work of God, which he won't ultimately, or to make some of us get discouraged and quit. 
But God, like I touched on earlier, and we're going to look at it even more, God allows Satan to work in the lives of believers to accomplish God's greater purpose in the lives of the believers. Sounds kind of crazy, but hey, let's just let God be big, all right? God can even use Satan to help you grow. That's just hard for a lot of us. I want to say it again. God can even use Satan to help you grow. Go to Luke chapter 22. Look at verses 31 through 34. Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Some translations say he's asked. I love that because he has to get permission. But I have prayed for you. Some of your translations have a third Simon here. That's not in the original texts, but it, it's, it's okay because that you there is singular. The first one is plural. Satan has asked that he might sift you all as wheat, but I prayed for you, singular Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Of course, Peter says to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, actually, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus has already said he's Peter prior to this. He's the new creation. He was Simon, but he's now become Peter. But Jesus then calls Peter by his old name to get his attention. By the way, he's, even though you're Peter, you're going to look like Simon for a little while. Satan's asked to mess with you that he might sift you as wheat. In other words, what that, what that means is this. When you sifted wheat, you take the grain and you you'd roll it in your hands and then... You blow away the chaff and the, the, the grain will stay. The chaff blows away. And he's saying Satan wants to prove that you're the chaff. You're not for real. But actually, I'm going to let this trial go through and you're going to fail. And it's actually going to help you realize that you're for real. And after you've come back, I'm going to use this through you to strengthen the brothers. And I don't think that meant the church as much as it means the Jews. Because who could be the best person to preach to the Jews? Remember, Paul had been chosen by God to go to the Gentiles, Peter to go to the Jews. Who could be the best person to preach to the Jews? The guy that could say, look, I know you crucified him, and I know you denied him, I know you rejected him, but guess what? I lived with him for three years. I saw him raise the dead. I saw his glory transfigured on that mountain. I wasn't allowed to talk about it until after he rose from the dead. I saw him heal Jairus' daughter. I was with him further. I lived with him for three years, and when push came to shove, I rejected him too. But he forgave me, and he can forgive you. But Satan was allowed. Remember, Satan's asked to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you that through this trial, you'll come out stronger. Go to Revelation chapter 2. Look at verses 8 through 11. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Wait a minute. 
Jim, if I read this correctly, or if what you just read is accurate, Satan was going to be allowed in this church to actually have some people put to death. Yes. Well, then he won. No. We've already talked about this, folks. <laughs> if you die, who wins? You do. You win. <laughs> what did Paul say when he was sitting in prison? He goes, I don't know how this is all going to work out, whether by life or death, but I know I'm going to be delivered either way. If I die, that means I go be with Christ, which is better by far. And to be honest with you, I'm kind of torn. I can stay in the body and get more reward for later on, but, and then I'll go see him, but I may go see him now, and I don't know. And I, if you have to, me to ask me which way I want to go, I'm, I'd have a hard time saying. A lot of us, I, I, get, I, I hope I don't make you feel bad, but I'm tired of Christians telling me when I say, how are you doing? They say, well, I'm on this side of the dirt. Too many people say that to me, and the prophet in me wants so bad to, but I don't. But I think to myself, and sometimes I say it, you know, the other side of the dirt's better. We're not to be suicidal, but we're to long to be unclothed. We don't long to be naked. We want to be clothed with our heavenly bodies. We groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We should be ready for that time. And when you are ready for that time, Satan's got nothing on you. Yes, Satan's going to put some of you to death. But that's okay. I, I'll be honest with you. I've been praying about this whole Hamas-Israel thing. And what if it were my daughters that had been taken captive or my son? You know what my prayer had been as I've been thinking about that? I pray that they died instantly. I pray that they just go be with the Lord. But don't you want them here? I want them with Jesus. I want him his plan, and he's in control of all that. Satan can do nothing without the Father's permission. And God will use even someone's death for his glory. Oh, and like we've already seen, Peter's denial was used for the glory of God. Folks, we, we don't have time to go there, but in Hebrews chapter 11, it lists the men and women of faith. When you get to verse 32 and following, the Hebrew writer says, What more shall I say? I don't have time to talk to you about Jephthah and Samson and all these other people and some of them escaped the edge of the sword. Some were killed by the sword. Some wandered in deserts and caves, but none of them were, the world wasn't worthy of them. Folks, there's no guarantee that you won't suffer tribulation or trials in this life. It's actually going to happen. But listen, when God allows Satan to do some things in your life, he has a greater purpose in mind. God does. And if we just surrender to that, God's greater purpose will be accomplished. So I'm going to say it to you again. Satan's always on the prowl looking to slow the work of God. He's only allowed to do what God allows him. He won't ultimately win. God's plan will be accomplished, but he's always lurking. He will even make an appearance among and through believers as well as unbelievers. Hopefully, he doesn't get to use us too much. God will even allow him to do his work for God's greater purposes. But listen... Please remember that he and his minions are always around, even in our churches, to hinder the work of God. Let me ask you a question. Would you not agree that the Bible says that there are going to be many in the last days in the church who aren't really saved? Is it our job to figure out who is and who isn't? We've already said that God will even allow Satan to use believers to maybe say a few things that Satan's wanting them to say. 
We need to be alert to that. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Because I think a lot of us, a lot of times, lose sight of the fact that there's a spiritual battle going on much greater. And by the way, if you weren't awakened to that with what's going on over there in Israel, hopefully you see the evilness of what's really going on. This is deeper than man. Ephesians 6, listen to verses 10 and following. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the sword of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in change that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. By the way, that doesn't sound like a brochure about, hey, give your life to Jesus and you'll have the yellow brick road to heaven. That doesn't sound like that, does it? No, you're about to enter into a battle. You're going to be transported from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And there is a battle between these two kingdoms, and it's ultimately going to be won by Jesus. But in the meantime, there's going to be a lot of skirmishes. And if you're going to be able to be a part of what God wants to do in and through you, you need to be alert to this. And we don't have time to go there either, but in 2 Corinthians it talks about the fact that the weapons we use are not the weapons of this world. The church a lot of times wants to fight the world's battles with the weapons of this world. No, it's a spiritual battle, and we need to let the Lord show us. Go back to Revelation chapter 2. Look at verses 18 through 25. Again, I'm just showing you this to let you know that there is going to be the enemy's work and hindrance even in the midst of our churches. And we need to be alert to this. Revelation 2, 18 through 25. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I'll give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give the authority over the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I'll give him the morning star. He was an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Go to chapter 3, look at verses 7 through 9. 
And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews, but are not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Oh, and because you've kept the word about patient endurance, I'll keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Um, do you think Satan's out there trying to hinder the work of God? I can show you more, but I think that gives you enough of an idea. He's, he's everywhere, but he's not everywhere. Satan can't be everywhere like God, but he has his minions. He has those who work for him and with him and under him. But I also want to go back to what Paul said. I think there's another thing that Paul's hinting at here when he said he hindered me from coming. Go back to uh, verse 18. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. There's another possibility here, and I've not seen this until I was doing my study on this passage. Paul may be referring to the pledge or the money that Jason gave as security. Go back to Acts 17. You remember how they, the Thessalonians went and tried to find Paul and Silas and Timothy in Jason's house and they couldn't find him? Go to verses 5 through 9. But the Jews were jealous and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. What was this security? What was this money they took? How does that work? I think it was like kind of reverse bail. Let me explain. You all know how bail works, right? Bail, we get arrested, but if you give them some money, they'll release you to be free until the time of your trial. But the money you gave is proof that you will show up for the trial. You don't show up for the trial, you lose the money. I think this was like the reverse of it. They would, I think they came to Jason and said, hey, we can't find this guy. You've kind of aided and embedded. I'll tell you what, you give us money saying that he'll not come back. And we'll hold that as security. And if he shows back up, you lose the money. Now, some would say, wait a minute, Jim. If that's the case, Satan won. Oh, no. Hang on. Let's go a little deeper. First off, does Satan win when God's purpose has a, when God uses him for his greater purposes? No. We also got to keep this in mind. Paul didn't want Jason, if, if I'm correct in my assumption here, Paul didn't want Jason's Yes to be no, or is no to be yes. You know, the Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Paul would have actually had Jason be a liar if he showed back up. 
I don't think Paul cared about the money as much as the fact that he was more interested in Jason's word being his word, because that's how we represent Jesus. His yes is yes, and his no is no. But there's a greater thing in mind here. Paul was hindered from going, but who did he send back? Silas and Timothy. If you remember from earlier study, Silas went to Philippi, and Timothy he sent back to Thessalonica. You're going to see that when we come back in our study next time as we get into chapter 3. Satan was like, I'm not going to let Paul go back in there. God says, I'm okay with that. Because I've already used Paul to accomplish what I want to have accomplished there. And by you saying Paul can't go, I'm going to send Timothy back in. And this will be a time for Timothy to grow in his walk with the Lord. For those of you who understand, you all might not know what chapter it was in, but it's in chapter 15 of Acts where Paul and Silas, sorry, Paul and Barnabas had just been back for a while after their first missionary journey. And Paul says, hey, let's go back and let's go visit the people that we had visited in our first missionary journeys. And Barnabas was like, that's a great idea. Barnabas says, I'll tell you what, let's bring John Mark with us. And Paul says, nah, I don't want him going with us because when he was with us on the first missionary journey, things got tough and he deserted us. And I don't think he's cut out for this kind of a thing and I don't want to give him another chance. Barnabas says, I think we really should give him another chance. I, I see God's work in his life and I want to give him an opportunity. Paul says, I don't want to take someone that's going to be a quitter. They got into such a dispute that the two of them parted company. I mean, they're like, they're not, they're like not Facebook friends anymore. I mean, they'll have no contact. Paul took Barnabas, sorry, Paul took Silas, and Barnabas took John Mark. Did Satan win? It may look like it on the surface, but not really, because God was now able to do a greater work with two mission teams instead of one. Folks, it's not God's first choice that churches split. But sometimes God has to allow Satan to do his work so that his, God's work will be accomplished. If you look at some of the greater churches around where God's been using them and stuff, if you trace their history, I wouldn't be surprised if that church didn't trace back to a split at one time. Again, it may look like he wins for a season, but ultimately, God's purposes will be accomplished. I think we like to quote Romans 8, 28. We know that God works in all things for good for those who are called according to purpose. Love him and are called according to his purpose. I think we, folks, let me say something to you. Did Peter never let Satan use him? No. Was Peter... Did Peter live his life in such a way that Satan was never allowed to work in his life? No. Did Paul live that way? No. But was God's greater purpose accomplished through those who humble themselves and say, Lord, wow, my flesh just went on that one. But you know, Paul, at the end of his life, actually said this, go get John Mark, he's helpful to me in my ministry. By the way, that guy that Paul said wasn't cut out for the ministry wrote the Gospel of Mark. God had a greater purpose in mind. So, so I want you to understand. So when Paul says that he was hindered, there's many layers to this. We don't know the specifics of it, but it could even have been just simply that Paul was hindered because he didn't want Jason to break his word. And therefore, Paul didn't, wasn't able to go back. But Paul didn't just say, well, I'll just go somewhere else. He still had a heart and he went and checked on him through Timothy. We'll get into more of that next time we get together when we open up to chapter three. Now, 
Go to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19. We're going to spend the rest of our time tonight breaking this down. 19 and 20. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul calls the believers in Thessalonica their hope, their joy, and their crown of boasting and glory. But to get a fuller understanding of what Paul's saying here, though, you've got to put the rest of the sentence together. Their, their hope, their joy, crown of boasting and glory, what? What's the rest of it? Before the Lord Jesus at his coming. Paul saw the believers in Thessalonica as a part of his reward when Jesus comes back. That's why Paul says to them, he goes, we see you as our joy, you're our hope, you're our crown of boasting and glory when Jesus comes back. Because even though I was hindered from coming back to see you and was torn from you in person but not in heart, when I look at you, I thank God for what he's done in your life, but also there's some evidence of a couple of things. One, fruit of my labor. When Paul said he, he didn't want to labor in vain. He wanted to see evidence that God was using him. And secondly, he goes on and says this, and also the fact that you guys are still continuing in the faith is evidence that Satan didn't win. So our crown of boasting at his coming is everything Satan wanted to accomplish by having the crowd and the rabble come and beat you guys up and chase us out and then go into Berea and chase us out, he didn't win. Because you guys are standing firm in the Lord. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Look at verse 1. It says, Paul, Timothy, and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, it says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now keep reading. Philippians chapter, sorry, I started in 1 1. I'm sorry. Go to Philippians 4 1. Thank you. I should listen to myself once in a while. All right, Philippians 4 1. Then we're going to go back to Philippians 1 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So again, here Paul calls the believers in Philippi his joy and his crown. All right? Now go back to Philippians 1.1. I mean it this time. Paul and and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he's already shown us in 4.1 that they're his joy and crown. Jump over to verse 19 of Philippians 1 now. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this imprisonment, is what he's talking about, will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I'll not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. And we all understand that struggle. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming 
to you again. Again, Paul said, you guys are my glory. You guys are my joy. You're my crown. You're my reason for boasting when Jesus comes. Because as he's already said earlier in 1 Thessalonians, it was obvious that what happened was of God and not of men. Remember that? Because it was evidenced by the Spirit of God and a change in your life. It was also the evidence that you received the gospel, not as words of men, but the words of God. And so Paul was able to, even though he couldn't visit them, his heart was there. Why? Because they were his joy. They were his glory. My wife and I are going to have a real treat coming up in a few days. We're going to go visit friends and family in the church in Galax that we preach at twice a year. If you've probably heard the name Galax a few times over the years. Every May and every October, we get to go back for a whole week and share the Word of God with the church there, Hillcrest Baptist Church up there in Galax, Virginia. And it's just that we look forward to it because of the relationships that have been developed over the years. But after that, when we finish, a couple days after we finish there, we're going to go to Charlotte, North Carolina, and we are actually going to go hang out with Wade and Kate McCart. And you say, who are they? Well, actually, they're a young couple that we met when we were pastor and wife up in Chicago. And Wade and Kate were Moody Bible students. And they came to our church, and then Wade actually came on staff with us as the youth pastor. And we lived life together. And Wade and Kate have since become missionaries all over the globe. We've had the privilege of supporting them a little bit every month. And we've watched their children grow and serve the Lord all around. They've been in Africa. They've been in South Dakota. They've been in, in well, Wade just got back from Cuba. They've been all around India. And God's using them in some of the hardest places of the globe. And he's also shepherding a small church that meets in Charlotte, North Carolina on Saturday nights. And I get to go preach to that church Friday night and Saturday night for a couple of nights and encourage them in the word. But I'm looking forward to hanging out with Wade and Kate. Why? Because... There's some of the fruit of our ministry. We've watched them grow in the Lord. Oh, God had already begun his work in them. We didn't get them saved or anything like that, but we were able to come alongside of each other in ministry. So I'm going to ask you a question. I'm not talking just people that get saved because you shared the gospel with them. It's deeper than that. Because some are planters. Some are waterers. Some get to see the harvest. But we've all been given a role in the kingdom. And last week in our study, we were to look at the fact that we're to live our lives in a manner worthy of the calling of God. We looked at holiness and purity last week. But I want to take it a little bit deeper tonight and ask you this question. When you stand before God... What reward will you have for what he's done through you in the body after your salvation? Now, I want to chase a few scriptures to challenge and encourage you with this. Go to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. Look at verses 4 through 26. It says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. You see, it's a capital S, same Holy Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. 
and their varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now to each of us is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. Our gifts are to be used with each other, for each other. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, that's languages by the way, to another the interpretation of those languages. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, listen, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many, are one, one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. For the body doesn't consist of one member or one part, but of many parts. If the foot should say, well, I'm not a hand, I don't really belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. Or if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? As it, but as it is, God arranged the parts in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now the eye can't say to the hand, I don't have any need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we actually bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts don't require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the parts may all have the same care for one another. If one part suffers, all suffer together. If one part is honor, all rejoice together. And then he goes on and says, you all are the body of Christ and individually parts of it. So we've laid a foundation here. I'm gonna, I want you to go with me here. I'm going to walk you through some scriptures. And I want to encourage you and challenge you. We're looking at how to live worthy of the calling we have received. It's not just living to look like Jesus. It's now also individually living out the gifts that he's given us when he saves us. You've got to stop comparing your gifts with the people around you or try to be like anybody else. And you've got to find out what your gifts are and you've got to have fun just using those. Stop trying to be an eye if you're an ear. Okay? Stop trying to be a hand if you're a foot. But when you find out what part you are and you allow God to work with you that way, you will find your Christian walk to be a blast. Unfortunately, we in the church have over the years tried to make everybody pull their equal weight. Have you ever heard that one? 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. Actually, I find that closer to God's design. Actually, didn't he say he gave some five talents, others two, and others only one, each according to their ability? Did he not say in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, following, he said, Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but each of you with sober judgments in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been giving. If you've been, your gift is prophesying or preaching, use it in proportion to your faith. Folks, let me encourage you. In the days that we have left, Satan may have hindered you. Satan may have actually been allowed to do some things in your life to maybe slow you down from being used of God, but it's not too late. God can use that to make it greater, a greater response, a greater impact. But I want to challenge you, find out what your calling and gifts are and go jump into it. Let me give you a couple more examples. Go to 1 Peter 4. 
Now, you'll notice, in all these passages, they're talking about how God will get glory too. Not only will you be rewarded on the day that you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but also God will be glorified. Go to 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There are other passages that say if your gift is giving, give. But give where God tells you to give, not where the preacher tells you to give. Give where the Holy Spirit told you. He's, I got, I've given you that money for you to give it here. We've been taught a wrong definition of stewardship. A lot of us have been taught that stewardship is using the gifts and the time and the money that God's given us for God. Right? Isn't that what we've been told? God's given you gifts. He's given you time. He's given you money. Use it for God. Be a good steward. Well, according to that definition, who determines what you do? You do. According to that definition, if we're to determine what, how to use what God's given us for God, we're determining it. The biblical definition of good stewardship is using what God has given you when and where and how God has told you to use what he's given you. Do you see the slight difference? But it's huge. That's why you have a lot of people, well, this is what it means. If you're going to be a good steward, you're going to get five for a dollar instead of four for a dollar. That's not good stewardship. That might be if God's bank account was limited and you helped him because you saved a couple nickels. Actually, why don't you just do what he tells you to do? You ever noticed how generous people that really trusted God were in the scriptures? You go back and look at the story of when Abraham is visited by the three visitors. It was God and two angels. You go back and look at the meal that he and Sarah provided for the three guys that showed up. It's a cruise buffet. I'm not kidding you. You go look at the amount. It'll blow your mind how much food was brought out. But when we actually are using the gifts God's given us, it's an abundance. And we'll see God use it. But again, when we're trying to be good stewards, we try to save a nickel. Stop trying to save a nickel and just do what God tells you to do and watch him provide. Go to Matthew. Now, we've already quoted Matthew 25 and the, the talents. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5. I want you to understand there's going to be a reckoning one day for us believers. There's going to be a reckoning. Jim, I thought I was already guaranteed heaven. Oh, you're already guaranteed heaven, but your reward in heaven. Remember how Paul said he knows that there'll be more fruitful labor and more reward in heaven if he stays in the body longer? There's going to be a day, 2 Corinthians 5, we can start in verse 1. There's going to be a day when each of us as believers who are already given eternity stand before Jesus and he will judge us according to whether or not we allowed him to do through us what he had in mind. Remember from the parable of the talents, there was one who was given five, another two, another one. The one who was given five, God multiplied it to ten and he was told, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. The one who was given two, God turned it into four and he was told word for word the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. For 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, For we know that if the tent, or the body that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, we're not suicidal, but we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing who is, is God, who has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Some translations say evil. Instead of evil, it's worthless. All right? You're going to actually stand before the Lord and he's going to give you a reckoning. People say, I can't wait to go to heaven and I can't wait to see Jesus. Yes, that's awesome. But when you see Jesus, is going to be also... A day of reckoning. And he's going to not list all the sins that you committed. They've been already taken away and separated as far as east is from the west. But he's now going to hold you accountable for everything that he gave you to do after salvation. I didn't just save you and leave you there for no reason. I saved you and I gave you my spirit so that I could use you on the earth. Well, Lord, I, I, I didn't think I was supposed to be a preacher. Well, you weren't. But I gave you these gifts, and I put this on your heart. What would you do with those? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 15. The church has been fighting over which is the better preacher, which is the better teacher. Well, Paul, he only, he only shares the gospel so people get saved. Apollos is better. He's discipling. Discipling is more important. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted. Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. Listen. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. They're on the same team. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. Wait a minute. I thought that the gift of God is salvation. Yeah, that's the gift. But wages are something you earn. Salvation is a gift. But your reward for eternity is going to be tied to what you've done since. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I, Paul, laid a foundation, and someone else, like Apollos, is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day. You notice how that's capital D? The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, 
he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through the fire. Did you catch that? There's going to be a day of reckoning where what we've done after salvation will be measured. How are you going to fare? How are you going to do with this time in which you'll be judged according to what you've done after salvation? Folks, we have been given the opportunity in these days to be used of God for who's good. His glory and for the church is good. You, again, too many churches say, well, you've got to serve here. They've taken the passage about the body of Christ and they tried to make you have to serve here. Your ministry might not be in your local congregation as much as it might be other places like the Seafarers ministry that I know Chris and Pat are a part of and others are. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's lots of places that God can use you in the body of Christ. There's nothing wrong with being a part of your local body. And if God can use you there, great. But at the same time, just what's he put on your heart? Where is he stirring you? Who has he brought into your path? Live your life worthy of the calling that you've received. He didn't leave you here for no reason. Satan's going to try to hinder you through fear and discouragement and doubt and worry and your flesh and comfort. He's going to use all sorts of stuff. But ultimately, God's greater purpose will be accomplished. So I want to say to each one of you, stop trying to figure out if you're a five or a two or a one. Don't even worry about that. God just showed us that so we won't compare whether or not anybody's working as hard as me. Don't worry about that. You go find what it is that he has called you to do, and you will find the Christian life to be a joy. You try to do everything the church says you're supposed to do, you're going to be burnt out and miserable. I don't want that for you. I've been down that road of church work. We didn't name it just a preacher ministry for no reason. I know what my gifts are, and I love using them. I hope you find the same for you. I love you. We'll see you in a couple weeks, Lord willing.